Welcome to Linux Link Radio by TimeSys, the podcast for embedded Linux developers who want to simplify and speed up their custom platform development. Visit timesys.com today for access to our podcast archives. Welcome back. Uh, this is Machi Harash here. Hi, this is Gene. And well, today we're going to cover a number of different topics. We're getting back on our schedule. And we are. They got. They, they, we had the uh, stop by. You're not recording enough podcast schedule. Right? <laughs> you know the greasy guy that comes by and makes us do this. So well, but today we're going to have some fun with some of the uh, technical topics. Last time we talked or we had a, interviewed a guest of ours here, uh, Mike Erickson. Yeah. Uh, today we're going to focus on a um, couple of technical sides of uh, Linux. We will talk about a new Linux kernel that came out, uh, I think, a few weeks ago, right? Yeah, 2627. 2627, yeah. And we'll talk about a feature of a Linux kernel that is used by many customers that we work with, feature that allows them to load a binary firmware into a, a device at boot time. And then we'll talk also about um, another feature, uh, which is called, well... Oh, yeah. You know, my quest for file yeah. system. <laughs> I know that this is that, your thing. That's my topic of entertainment. We're going to talk a little bit about UBI. Um, and because there's some you know, more movement, you know, more movement afoot with respect to getting yet another, you know, flash based file system. Well, so there. we can spend some time talking about uh, really um, advantages and disadvantages to uh, embedded Linux system and using UB, UBFS, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. So, yeah, UBFS sits on top of this UBI interface, but it's right. it, yeah. So people see it exposed as UBFS. Okay. Um, hopefully, um, hopefully we'll be able to have a worthwhile discussion about that too for uh, for other folks. And I have I have my list of wildcard things to get in there too, which you tried to nix. No, I didn't. When when we were getting ready for. <laughs> well, so you mentioned uh, GCJ. Yeah, so I want to talk. A if we have enough time, we'll yeah. we'll cover that. Yeah, and there's well. even a, there's even another wild card that I even tell you about. Uh oh. Because I I wouldn't have mentioned. Well, that that's what makes those podcasts interesting. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so the six twenty seven released a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's got support for a number of different um, uh, new boards or or the existing boards, um, both in ARM and PowerPC family. A couple of them, well, off the top of my head, I know that there's support for a couple of new Marvell processors and uh, and reference board for the new family of ARM-based processors. There's what, what is the new, because I, I have to claim ignorance. So what is ARM up to with their with their new set of processors? No, no. so I'm talking about Marvell, right? Ah. And Marvell is an ARM licensee. Uh, okay, so and, you, you and they for- designed, yeah, they designed a s- systems system on chips, a family of system of chips. Um, is, is that what they bought from from when Intel when Intel jettisoned all the IXPs? Uh, no, actually, that's a completely separate family of processors. The uh, the previous ones, the PXAs, uh, mm-hmm. I know that there's. Um, oh, I'm sorry, there. Yeah, so is, wait, 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 wait. So. I always get these all these numbers and letters confused. Why I'm not good uh, in this job, right? So same here. So. <laughs> But so IXP is still with Intel. That's correct. And yeah. then the PXAs are with PXA has ah, been acquired okay. by Marvell. And um, as a matter of fact, the two six twenty seven comes with a baseline support for the new PXA uh, nine thirty, I believe, is the okay. new processor from that group. But the the other processors that I mentioned earlier. I forgot the names of them. Maybe they will come to me by the end of this podcast. But if you make up enough letters and numbers, you're, you're, as long as it's under five, you certainly yeah. hit the 
but there's a new uh, breed of system on chips that Marvell brings to the market, mm -hmm. and they are all supported right now by the kernel mainline. Oh, that's cool. Um, other other features, UB and UBFS. Um, UBFS is now officially supported by 2.627, and we'll spend some time today talking about uh, UB and UBFS. Mm -hmm. Same for um, firmware loading, and um, that's when, actually a pretty cool feature. Yeah. So when we when we talk about that and specific use cases, we can definitely talk about how people have been doing that in the past and um, what 2.627 kernel um, offers today. And of course, all the new kernels. Yeah, maybe we could because that's something you know. I'm not the kernel kernel side guy too much, but at least we can get into the mechanics of what's happening. Yeah, because we were we were talking about that. It's like we, I've been a user of that because you see that um, for a lot of the wireless cards, right? Mm -hmm. They have in essence, well, not have in essence, but that's exactly what they have. They have these firmware mm -hmm. uh, uh, caches that sit out somewhere in your lib directory, right? And right. you load up the module, and it loads up this firmware, and you know, right plops it on the device. There's a number of devices like that, right? Uh, for, for years, I think, uh, all the graphics cards um, had to deal with that approach. Wi-Fi devices, uh, whenever you want to initialize the hardware in a certain way, and, uh, well, this you consider it to be your value-adding information. Yeah. Uh, companies typically create a binary file mm -hmm. uh, firmware that yeah. gets loaded at runtime. Now, the challenge with that approach thus far um, has been that when you combine binary image with Linux kernel binary, mm -hmm. that raises licensing questions. Yeah, that was my, that was my next question. So I'm thinking through, that, that's pretty cool that you have whatever magic binary file that has your microcode that you're going to run. But mm -hmm. does that mean the device has you know a little bit of flash or a little bit of temporary memory that's being loaded up in essence with a program that is totally proprietary? Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm guessing, right? And then then off it goes in order to do your calls. Right. But uh, so yes, absolutely. So that firmware file, when combined with Linux kernel binary, mm -hmm. does the initialization, for example, sets up, the, if there's like a computing part on the device, sets it up appropriately and preps it for a device driver work, right? So device driver expects certain behavior. Uh, from that device. Now, um, so it seems like a little bit of an end run around GPL there, right? Yeah. It's like, oh, my magic code. It's, it's no firm. I'm making quotes with my fingers. It's not firmware, not. Well, oh my God. What did I just do? I'm sorry. You just probably pressed some button on, on your microphone. <laughs> I'll never do that again, whatever it was. Sorry about that. So, uh, yes, but. Um, firmware and Linux kernel combining the two. Um, so um, there are typically no uh, direct cross dependencies between the two, right? So the uh, device driver does not depend on a firmware. The firmware itself does not derive from a Linux kernel or device drivers. It, it's uh, independently written software. Um, the dependency is there to a degree that, you know, if you don't have firmware, the device driver is not going to do what it's um, supposed to do. Right? Yeah, I, I mean, that still smells like a scam, right? You're still pushing the bubble like, well, I could yeah. independently make the entire darn driver myself. Um, well, so the problem was that in the past, uh -huh. um, it was um, the, the firmware binary has been merged with Linux kernel at uh, compile time. So you have one image, right? One binary image that contains both GPL and non-GPL code, which given 
uh, where GPL licensing is going or current definition of GPL, it's 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 at least gray area, right? Uh, so two six twenty seven, uh, new approach. Right now, they uh, there is a function called request firmware that you can program into your device driver and device driver basically calls that function whenever firmware is needed. And that firmware is no longer combined with the Linux kernel binary. It lives on a root file system under lib firmware. Mm-hmm. So as, uh, as, I, as I found, right? <laughs> yeah. So uh, device driver, when it needs the, the code, the, the binary, simply loads it uh, from that place. Uh, initializing the, the hardware or setting up some of the values for your driver. But my question is, does that does that stay resident? I mean, do you make further calls into that into that lump of code, or does it do its initialization and then go away? Um, typically, it's a, it's a non-interactive um, piece of software, right? So it, it does one thing that it's designed for, and then the device driver actually takes over. Well, in many cases, there, there are some frameworks that probably both of us, we... We interacted with where um, there's certain API that firmware exposes, mm-hmm. and then based on that API, you can still program some functions in the device driver yeah. to take advantage of it. But um, I haven't seen a device driver that would uh, that would rely on such API recently in embedded space, at least. No, I was just curious more yeah. than anything else. It, but it, it just does, does seem to invite some wiggle room for people that want to. I don't know, follow the letter, but not the spirit of, of the GPL. I mean, it really legitimizes that sort of structure. Well, but uh, when you when you compare that with uh, writing proprietary device drivers, and I apologize for the term again. <laughs> which, which one? <laughs> well, but uh, device drivers, the ones that companies uh, try somehow protect from providing the source code for, uh, they typically rely on uh, some subsystems in the Linux kernel, they make the call, uh, or multiple calls to those subsystems. And, and that's really gray area. So when you, when you compare that with firmware, it's a much cleaner cut, right? Oh, I, there's no way I, there's, I completely agree with you there. There's no way I can disagree. It, it makes the, the delineation point very clear. Right. But if you, if, you know, for sake of argument, I agree that um, if somebody comes from the standpoint of, hey, uh, whatever gets loaded into Linux kernel is really open source GPL, then definitely. Yeah, well, I mean, by virtue of having a very clear delineation point, right, mm. points out the fact that there's something to delineate, right? I mean, so it's, uh, uh, it makes it much more obvious uh, as, yeah. to the, as, to the, as to the intent of the person doing the work. Um, yeah. And, I, you know, I guess I'd much rather have uh, semi quasi you know, proprietary support for some for a device that I needed rather than not none at all, and I think mm. that's what we what was what we were running into. So you had some companies that yep. never had yep. nothing at all. Yeah. So uh, another another aspect of uh, this new approach into six twenty seven Linux kernel is that um, now you can swap the firmware at runtime. Mm-hmm. You don't have to rebuild the Linux kernel, put something, um, or reboot the device in a field um, to get the firmware loaded. You simply swap a file in the root file system and you reload the module and that way you get the new firmware running on your device so that's a a nice value-adding feature um, of new approach into 627 yeah yeah and i guess it also means it's a another uh, uh sort of a nit ram fs reason to have that around right 
because uh, it makes it a lot easier to get your devices initializer. It's another pre-initialization step that you might have to be ready for. Yeah, I mean, it may not be the the, the final thing you end up using, but because um, you may choose to use something different than reinitialize the device, but at least to get bootstrapped, that's that's probably how you're going to have to go in and do that. Yeah, so I think that this uh, this approach is going to be adopted by many vendors out there in the embedded space um, for those reasons that we just mentioned alone, right? And just to make the delineate, the, the the uh, you have to say that word for me. Demarcation, maybe? Um, that sounds like that's a good much easier. Delineate. <laughs> well, that shows up my telco thing, right? They have that demarcation point. Where, uh, uh, demarcation line. Okay. And they make a big deal out of it. It's but, like the but, two wires you, hanging on the but side. You get my house. point. Okay. Um, all right. So, uh, next topic that we wanted to cover is. Uh, After you like cut me off, I'm not talking anymore. You can talk the rest of the time. Okay, but we are going to your favorite topic, uh, file systems. Uh, do you still want me to talk all the time? I thought our, I thought my favorite topic was like, never mind. So <laughs> yeah, because we we yeah, well, you know in this one too we have uh, uh, the unsorted block right, mm -hmm. uh, unsorted block images file system uh, coming out, which you know which is a two layer just a two layer thing right. You have the file system that sits on top of it, mm -hmm. but you have this UBI interface that attempts to do a better job of creating an abstract layer in between what's really happening on those flash devices and then what the kernel needs to do in order to manage those flash devices properly. Right, but um, UB uh, is also relying on a MTD device, right? It's a, it's designed for true flash devices and not yes. for devices like hard drives or... Yeah, that's a good point. So, yeah, so it is, it is focused squarely on the MTD, the flash, NAND and NOR flash devices. And uh, it's set up for you know, things that are based on erase blocks rather than, mm. you know, so a drive is a block device and a MTD device is a, uh, what they call an erase block device. Mm -hmm. and, uh, so, and so it has the, the some code built into it to handle um, creating this abstraction layer between the what they call the erase blocks on the disk and um, the blocks that it's manipulating from a file system perspective. Because mm -hmm. uh, one of the issues you get into Right. For any of those sort of technologies is the fact that you can't write to one spot frequently. Mm -hmm. And so. Well, you can, but then that device would not serve you for long. That's right. You can write to it <laughs> frequently for a certain amount of time. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, a good point. So, um, so what this system uh, did is it, uh, it's an improvement over JFFFS, J, a bunch of Fs, S, right? In that um, it writes its sector list, not just sector list, but it's block list out on the drive. Mm -hmm. um, so the mount times are a little bit less because it doesn't have to sort of read all that in and calculate it in memory. It sort of creates a cache of them as it's, as it's yeah, uh, working right on the, on the drive. So, so that actually what's been a, a challenge with JFS too, right? Because it has been created in the past to serve smaller flash devices, but with the introduction or, or cost of typical uh, NAND flash device going down and new flash devices if the size of 256 megabytes not being anything unusual or even larger, right? Yeah. Well, it, you know what? I'm sorry. Uh, I just wanted to point out that I've seen many, many times um, over the past few months uh, customers uh, complaining about GFS2. Um, I mean, how much how much time it takes to boot a system from JFS2. Well, there's I mean, there's strategy you can use to speed that up. I mean, one of the things is you can take your uh, block list and uh, your free block list and mm -hmm. append it to the end of the image 
basically mm-hmm. to get the, the startup time increased. Well, but does it imply that you can't write to a device? No, no, it doesn't imply that. So so that that directory structure, because that's what it is, right? Uh, that you append to the Linux kernel would not change if you, for example, write to the device, create subdirectories? Uh, not exactly. Okay. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a caching technique, right? So instead, okay. of, instead of trying to figure out everything, uh, it, it gives you a, a faster way. It, it just records, hey, uh, what, would, what would otherwise be built up in the memory? Okay. It keeps appended to the end of the JFFS2 block. Mm-hmm. And then uh, that way, whenever it starts up, instead of it walking through to find out what its free list is and what's empty, mm-hmm. it looks to another section and just reads it, mm-hmm. reads it right off. Uh, instead of walking every node, right? Because uh, it, w- it was it was one of those classic scaling problems with JFFS two. I mean, when that was uh, written, a gigabyte of flash was <laughs> unimaginable. Who, who would ever want that? I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah who would ever want that? It was like uh, it's a hard drive. <laughs> yeah, and so what what you know, UBI attempts to do is keep track of that right on the disk. So how does it do that? Uh, where is that information stored right now? They have a, and I I forget that they have a a tree that they have some, so they have some nodes reserved on the disk. Okay. And they just write into the disk. Uh, so each node stores its own information on the data stored in it? There's some of that, but there's a the, the tree that contains the free list uh-huh. and the use list is is kept pers- is persisted on the device itself. Okay. So there's a bit of a recursion problem there because it also has to wear level its own metadata, mm-hmm. but that's all hidden in what they call their you know, physical block yeah. layer, right? So they have this, they have this notion of a, of a logical race block mm-hmm. that they layer on top of a physical race block. And so as a user, you interact with this logical race block and then mm-hmm. it maps between the two, you know, the, the, the free list and sort of manages that. So you're, re, you're relieved as a UBIFS author, right? You're relieved of knowing physically what's happening. Yeah. So a software that writes to a, a device that's using UBIFS sees exactly the same device at all times. And what happens underneath, I mean, how how the UBFS manages wearing, uh, leveling, and uh, mm-hmm. bad blocks, that, that's hidden in the lower level of a UBFS. Yeah, that's hidden in, in, in between the, the mapping between the logical and the physical nice. erase blocks. That's smart. And the other thing that they did too is they, is they wrote it so that uh, it really did write back support. Hmm. Um, that's been actually a challenge with JFS too. Yeah, and 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 so I was I dug in a, a more than I want to admit. Mm-hmm. Right? I, I but I dug in and looked and I, and because you know because it, it also does compression, right? Oh, does it? So you on can, the fly? Yeah. So you can get into a little bit of a pickle whenever you're doing mm-hmm. something like writeback support because you have uh, the ability to oversubscribe your your system because it thinks right. So if you write a hundred bytes into into the cache. And there's a you know uh, uh, 50 bytes left on the disk. Um, so hold, hold, fit, hold, hold right? on, um, let me kind of step back for a second. Write back. That means that you keep the data on a in, in a cache in memory, and you don't write as often as your application requests the write to a device. That's correct. Right. Sorry. And that's yeah, that's different than JFS two because mm. JFS two will will serialize its writes. Mm-hmm. Um, and this system will hold them in, in cache. And um, what it will attempt to do is whenever it can, at an opportune time, it will attempt to write things. Because 
when you have a, a system like like a flash system, it needs to erase something, mm-hmm. organize its blocks properly, then write right. something new. So it's it doesn't really if you if you update something on your file system, it's actually a very expensive operation for it to yeah. readjust where things are located. Right. And uh, they 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 have a like a budgeting system built in where because you're writing into a cache and right. it's compressed, it's not like a, it's, there's not a one to one relationship between bytes right. written and bytes available. Right, so you don't know exactly how much space it's going to take on a physical device before you write to it. Mm-hmm. And and sometimes writing, you know, when you're moving stuff around on the device, it, you might find that you have a block that's bad, that okay. not that that before wasn't bad. Right. So then when you write to it, you then you have less memory, you have less available than you thought you had. So, so. so how does UBFS deal with that? I mean, I I could imagine that uh, calculating, you know, how much space is available on a physical device on the fly. It's it's a fairly complex. Um, so they they did it the easy way, and I, I would say the smart way. I'll okay. preface that way. It's the, both the smart and easy way, in that they create a buffer, okay, um, for the device, and whenever you begin to, whenever you exceed whatever they consider their high watermark, mm-hmm. it'll start serializing, and until until things become quiescent again, and it decides that it, there's enough capacity to then hold stuff in memory. I see. That what I, that's what I was. I'm sure someone will write into me so, and say so, you got it all wrong. But I was reading the the code, and that's so. It's it's kind of. Um, would you agree that that's more of a, a pessimistic approach? And yeah. typically, uh, it uh, it allocates or, or budgets for less than it actually has available. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. So it's like I mean, and that makes sense. Um, you know, most people that that need to use a you know this kind of device. Um, they have a, a good understanding of how much they're going to be writing to it, and they they do it in a controlled manner. Um, so that's, I, I just I thought it was clever. I mean, there's mm-hmm. some interesting engineering things they had to do in order to have all that fit together nicely, but they they did a nice job. Yeah. So it sounds like uh, rather than finding workarounds to get your old GFS2 uh, file system to work as uh, as you need, UBFS can be a very nice alternative to. Are these new projects that are going to rely on newer versions of Linux kernels? Yeah, uh, because um, because both writing back and the way you, I mean, the time it takes to boot the device that uses UBFS is very advantageous to. Uh, yeah, we well, you know because you know, a lot of our users, because of the JFS booting issues uh, and the time required, uh, will have their main system right their their operating system partition. Mm-hmm. They'll have that as a ROMFS or a CRAMFS file system because right. they mount incredibly fast and yep. they they just boot up right away. I don't know if you ever do those, you know, boot Linux and and many seconds <laughs> kind of things. You'll find out that I mean that's what they do. That's one of the first things you get rid of. Yep. Because you delay the time required to do the JFFS mount right. after the system is effectively started and or you you know. Right. So you do staged booting basically mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, you mount in parallel with performing some other actions but uh well so it sounds like ubfs solves that uh issue to some to some degree but um the budgeting thing i would imagine that um is another scalability potential scalability uh uh, issue for the future yes and uh but well we'll cross i guess that bridge when we get there yeah i I was i was i was trying to sort of absorb what would be involved in that but 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 the the pessimistic nature of the scaling means that so you may get a gigabyte, mm-hmm. and then it may decide that only, you know, eight hundred megabytes is something you can write to. Well, mm-hmm. okay. So then you just you you, you put a 
uh, you put a multiplier or you put a coefficient in front of the amount of memory you stick on a system as to its, its effective amount of memory and you, and you budget onward. I mean, it seems like a very sane, sane budgeting system. I'm looking forward to seeing actually a couple of uh, uh, new demos that uh, we are assembling here in the house show the advantage of uh, UBFS. I know that uh, a couple of uh, engineers here at Thompson have been uh, actively working with UBFS for a while. So um, uh, very excited about it. Yeah, I haven't had the, I've been tinker toying away with it, but I haven't had the chance to really get in there and, and make it fall over, right? Because that's the fun part, right? Uh, well, we would be very much interested in uh, your opinions about UBFS. If you're planning on using UBFS in your project, or perhaps if you plan on using a new feature of 2627 to use firmware in your design, uh, please let us know, share your opinions with us. But um uh, before we end this uh, episode, I know that there are a couple of uh, oh yeah, well, I have hidden agenda topics. Well, no, so I have some side <laughs> issues, right? So the the first the first total side issue is uh, uh, Java. So GCJ, there seems to be a decent resurgence in interest in using GCJ on embedded devices. Really? Yeah, and so I dug in, and because uh, I, I watched that project, yeah, and I think it's a really it's a cool thing to do, right? It's a and open source. Um, well, well, the thing, the other thing is it treats Java like it should be treated, right? Mm-hmm. Which is a compiled language right down to the machine. And, you know, the whole virtual machine thing I still view is, um, we have some guy here that, you know, Java is his best friend. and he probably You don't have to lean over to okay. see him. <laughs> well, I, I think he lip reads. So if he notices me saying, <laughs> but anyway, so, um, but yeah, so I mean, being able to compile right down to, to, to machine code for targets. Yeah, very interesting. And one of the cool things about people being attracted to GCJ is they have a very good implementation of Java 5. Um, so which is kind of a good question. So a little bit ahead of the curve. Uh, GCJ, um, you're talking about compiling directly uh, um, Java, Java source code yeah. to not to the byte code, but to machine code? Yeah. Okay, so we're talking about using like uh, Giselle? Well, I don't We were talking about that earlier, and the whole Giselle thing is is because Giselle is execution of bytecode right on the processor. Mm-hmm. And this, you know, for ARM, it would produce ARM machine code. Right. That, and you could run that in, in Linux. Okay. Uh, because one of the things I was trying to figure out with Giselle is that if you could put it in, you know, put your processor in Giselle mode, right, and just pump it a bunch of bytecode yeah. to run in. Directly on the processor. I don't think you can. I think once the operating system's up and going, yeah. operating system's up and going. Yeah, no, definitely there. As far as I know, that coexistence is not there. But uh, so GCJ, um, what does it mean, machine code? Uh, you mean like Linux binary? Yeah. So what what it is? It's a front end. It's a G. It's a GCC front end. Okay. So it takes the Java code, it reads it, it builds a parse tree, it does the right stuff, and then out the other side, uh, you get the uh, what I forget what they call the GCC intermediary language, mm-hmm. and then from that, voila, it, it runs to the optimizer and it produces. You know, a bunch of assembler code that runs through the assembler and then gets uh, linked for execution. So is that a way of avoiding a virtual machine on your target? Yeah, that's actually clever. Yeah, hmm. I have to look more into it. Yeah, and, and with with GCJ, what they have built into it is uh, an interpreter. So mm-hmm. they do have a bytecode interpreter mm-hmm. for the current machine, which makes sense yep. in case you load up some arbitrary class 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 lib, and then they also have the ability to compile the class libs. Yeah, so. So you'd have to actually compile class libs as libraries mm-hmm. and then application as uh, um, something that uses those libraries yeah. at runtime. Yeah. 
That's very, very interesting. Yeah. And um, because I know that GCJ has been having some problems with uh, quality of how yeah. it performs the tasks and, oh, yeah. the, and the quality of the machine code. So uh, improvements that you're talking about dealing with those quality issues. Yeah, there's 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 been an improvement. I mean, even my little I have a I would call it the extremely poor man suite of tests yeah. uh, are doing better on the new. Uh, doing much better on the newer GCJs. So is it uh, better in terms of uh, compilation or is it better in terms of how it runs? Better in terms of that it works. <laughs> okay, yeah. No, that, that's a big uh, yeah. step forward. Yeah, well, I think now they have Eclipse running under you know, under GCJ, hmm. which is, I mean, that's talking about an acid test, right? So that's a pretty good acid test. So wow. something is, Quite a few classes. Yeah, one or two. And that, I mean, it loads stuff on the fly. And I mean, Eclipse is a great big wrapper around the class loading system. Right. I mean, it is. It really is. So it, it runs a lot of arbitrary Java bytecode. Hmm. And I know that's something that GCJ didn't do very well before. You could snap it pretty easy. Well, so that's another topic that uh, I would imagine we want to hear from you, uh, whether you're looking to... Um uh, adopt GCJ perhaps for your project. Yeah, you know, I, and, and the reasons for that. I'm yeah, sorry. That, no, no, that's a really good idea because you know it's, it's difficult because we get the the sales, you know, the sales critter shows up and and, and you don't really have a feeling of what's going on out there. You, know, you huh. can hear from your buddies or whatever else, but yeah, if there's a GCJ adoption story out there, we'd love to hear. I think it would be yeah. great. And and each project is different. So uh, I, I've seen the same technology being used in completely diff two different ways. And one way for us to uh, promote different approaches is um, to share your stories. So yeah. please um, contact us, write to us. Our email address is... I, Jesus, podcast at timesys.com. Ah, you see, I... I can't remember those things. My yeah. wife remembers all uh, contact information yeah. from me. <laughs> no, your iPhone remembers. Or is, is that what you're calling your iPhone now? Uh, no, I, no. Wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> <laughs> but there's, there's a, yes, yeah, so you can always, I, I think if you go to pod, uh, with a, um, podcast.timesys.com, podcast.timesys.com is, and, and also linuxlinkradio.timesys.com. They got, they splurged and spent the whole $14 to register the domain name for us. But yeah, so it's all available. You know what the other thing I've been fiddling with too? Oh, we're almost done anyway. So the other thing I've been fiddling with too is, uh, uh, you, you remember Pick? Uh, Pick. From, from way back when, yeah. What is Pick? Pick. Oh my goodness. So Pick was in, this is not a joke, Pick was invented by oh, so Dick that, Pick. So, so that's the hidden agenda. No, item. no, no, no. So it's an operating. Okay. So I'm an, interested. So it's an operating system that runs with variable length records. Okay. And... Um, uh, everything is stored in what they call a dictionary. Okay. So you have the certain vocabulary of things to do and data is stored. It's a multi-value database. And mm -hmm. so any, anything in the database can be one or zero or more values and any value can be zero or more values, you know, all the way down. And mm -hmm. so it's a system that, you know, makes that kind of storage and data representation easy. And so way back, like way back, way, way, way back. Um, hundreds years ago, hundred years ago, <laughs> um, when, uh, uh, never mind. So, uh, I, I, that was one of my jobs was to write pick code. Right. And so I was wondering to myself, Hey, I wonder if that's available on Linux because some tortured soul, right. Had to have ported. Lo and behold, there really is a halfway decent pick. It's called, uh, it's called open QM. And so I you know, cracked it open, created some vocabulary, wrote some, you know, pick basic, which I, I thought I'd repressed. I thought I had to go back to counseling for that. A pickle. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. I don't, you know, I have no idea what its applicability to embedded systems is. I'm guessing zero. <laughs> what does it do under Linux? I wonder if, if it was supposed to be its own little operating system. What's the advantage of using it on Linux? It's like if you could you could think of it as a, something on the same uh, level as like PHP. Hmm. So it's a it's a language and. It, it allows you to, one of the nice things about the, the system is that you can store very arbitrary data types. Mm-hmm. So if you wanted to keep track of um, uh, something like visits to your website, I'm not making something up. And so you have a visit and mm-hmm. who visited mm-hmm. and you want to have a list of their visits. And then for the list of their visits, you want a list of their activities. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, with a traditional database, you'd set up three tables. Mm-hmm. And with, with something like pick, you set up, one table. One table with one record, and each record would have multiple values built into it. Mm. Okay. It's just, it's a very different way of thinking about things. Um, it's basically flattening hierarchical approach. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So you don't have a lot of the database-y sort of things. And it, so for small, overhead. Yeah. For small, for small applications, definitely that would um, facilitate the design um, and, and uh, probably performance as well. Yeah, for larger, um, larger database, pure database applications and systems that might be uh, not having enough features. Probably the wrong approach, yeah. right? For for a bigger database, but for something little, if you're storing a couple k or you know right. ten or twenty or thirty k worth of data, and you you need it to be unstructured, mm-hmm. maybe an interesting approach. Interesting. I have to get in there and and you know see if I can break it and see what I can get out of it data storage wise, right? Okay. Uh, so uh, we'll be looking forward to hearing about the next story from way back when. Yeah, well, during no, our no, next. But, but I, I think it's it's just worth looking at. So I, I, I have no idea what's applicability for embedded systems, but what the heck? No, it's 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 all technology. Yeah. So, uh, like I said, any questions or comments, uh, uh, love to hear from you if you're a GCJ user or if I screwed up my description of UBIFS, uh, if we didn't do a good job uh, explaining what's new in uh, 2627, write in. I'd uh, love to hear from you. Uh, we, we did this, so we'll be able to get back in touch pretty soon. Uh, so, uh, let us know and we'll hear back from you. Know, we'd love to hear from you and we'll be... Uh, another episode in a a week or two and we're inviting you to uh, listen to our next episode yep take it easy thanks this podcast was brought to you by timesys are you new to embedded linux looking for a way to simplify your next project the linux link service by timesys makes it easy to build your custom embedded linux platform go to timesys.com today or call 866-392-4897 to learn more